folks, this is Scott Weingart, and you're listening to the MCrit Podcast. This week, an episode I'd been dreaming about. A couple months ago, I was contacted by an ED physician from San Diego, Joe Belezzo, who told me they're doing resuscitative ECMO for peri-arrest patients in the ED. And as soon as I heard that, I knew I needed to get him on the show. So let's go right to it. My name is Joe Belezzo. I'm an emergency physician at Sharp Memorial Hospital in San Diego. I'm the clinical medical director of our ER and uh, also our ultrasound director. And Joe, the reason I wanted to speak to you is uh, you have somewhat amazing things going on with ECMO being started in the ED. So what caused you to start uh, bringing this therapy down to the emergency department? Our facility has a over 20-year history of use of ECMO in the ICU and basically in the upstairs setting. And it was sort of a natural progression a year and a half ago to start trying to apply this sort of amazing technology uh, to the ER, you know, bringing, as you say, the upstairs care downstairs. Well, obviously, I love that. Now, just for any listeners that aren't familiar, why don't you just give us a brief one-minute synopsis of what ECMO actually is? Sure. We'll uh, talk terms real quick because you're going to hear various terms uh, in the community. ECMO stands for extracorporeal life or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Uh, there's also the term ECLS or extracorporeal life support. And then you hear CPS as well, which is cardiopulmonary uh, support, uh, which are all basically equivalent to cardiopulmonary bypass that are performed in a percutaneous fashion. ECMO itself is a term that I think is not, uh, doesn't really uh, lend itself to what it actually does. It's an old historic term that was used from back when, uh, you know, and still used to this, to this day when neonates are uh, brought, you know, are, are preterm and end up having low surfactant levels and they end up needing oxygenation. But uh, that term has now uh, sort of been uh, brought into the cardiopulmonary support. So we're now getting patients who are on uh, complete cardiopulmonary bypass, yet they're still referring to it as ECMO. Gotcha. And you're using this primarily in the ED for post-cardiac arrest and peri-arrest patients? Exactly. And uh, it's done by our ED physicians, by ED physicians. Um, not, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric and, and research done um, in the in hospital setting where it's done by CT surgeons and cardiologists. And the amazing thing here is that we're doing it in the ED by ED doctors. And it truly is amazing. So who are you doing this on? So, you know, the indications for ECMO are basically the youngish patient or the patient who we all know you want to, to survive. We're uh, obviously the really, really old or the patients who have multiple uh, medical problems or neurologic deficits, patients you know you don't you know, you really don't want to do the full, the full court press on yet. You know, they're still a, they're not a DNR yet. Those are the kind of patients you want to kind of leave off. But as a general rule of thumb, it's the patient you want to survive. And the bottom line is that it has to be a, a patient who comes in with basically a reversible problem. When we ask ourselves the question when a patient hits the door is what are we bridging this patient to? You know, it's not just the resuscitation for the sheer sake of it. You know, are we bridging them to cath lab? Are we bridging them to the operating room? Are we bridging them to resolution? of whatever caused their shock state. Well, why don't we get down to the nuts and bolts? I think the best way to do it is why don't you take us through one of your cases from start to finish and, and just explain as you go the steps for putting a patient onto ECMO. That sounds fine. Now, uh, 
bear in mind, what we do is ECMO in our department, in our emergency department, is a two-doctor procedure. Uh, this uh, requires one doctor to run the code and do all the usual resuscitative things that you've always done all along. And then the second doctor is the doctor who's initiating the ECMO. So I'll walk you through that. And uh, I'll talk about a, a real case that we had. Uh, it's a case of a 59-year-old male, no history of coronary disease, did have a history of hypertension and hypercholesterolemia, and he had about an hour's worth of jaw pain. His wife called 911, medics arrived, they gave him nitroglycerin and aspirin, the usual stuff, and an EKG in the field showed ST elevation in the um, inferolateral leads. He arrested en route, had a V-fib arrest, and uh, showed up in our ER with ongoing CPR. He got all of the usual intra-arrest management options, and at the same time, my colleague who was running the code brought me to the bedside to assist with management and placement of ECMO. So we do this in a three-stage process, and uh, we do it that way to sort of follow along the resuscitative efforts that are ongoing. So while my colleague was doing the usual stuff, intubated the patient, uh, put on some epi, amiodarone, bicarb, this guy was shocked over 15 times, and we'd reached the point where he was about an hour into his resuscitation, and he had no uh, return of spontaneous circulation that was of anything um, that was real. So what we do is while that's going on, the second physician, we call that doctor the line doctor, that doctor is accessing the femoral vessels. And we start off in stage one with placement of two femoral lines. The, uh, we happen to use nine French cordis sheaths, and we, uh, our CT surgeons have sort of signed off on the use of those. They don't th- seem to think that those need to be repaired if we decide not to go forward with the following procedures in ECMO. But uh, that's what we start off with. So we have one doctor placing nine French cordis sheaths in the um, femoral vein and femoral artery. Now, as a quick aside, the key to this whole thing is that the femoral vein during an ongoing CPR becomes massive, and we've just found it really difficult uh, to get into the femoral artery uh, if you don't do it quickly or do it while the patient has an intermittent pulse. So that's our number one goal is getting the femoral artery catheterized, and we do that under ultrasound guidance. So once that's catheterized, we then go to the vein and get the vein. Uh, Once we have two nine French cortices in place, we've reached stage one. And at that point, both doctors decide whether or not we're going to keep continuing going forward. Stage one is just getting any catheters into the femoral artery and femoral vein. And I I talked to Joe about this separately. And they put nine French catheters in because that's what they have available and they're very familiar with it and it works for them. But there's no reason you couldn't just put a normal arterial line in that femoral artery, a normal triple lumen in that femoral vein, and go further from there. Because these are not conduits for the ECMO. These are just normal catheters. And what's going to happen in stage two is they're going to thread a guide wire up those catheters and take those catheters out. Okay, so stage one is done. You now have a cannulation of the femoral artery and femoral vein. Do you go on either side, the same side? Does it matter? It's what you get? makes no difference. It's what you can get. And if we have a third doctor that happens to be lingering around, sometimes what we'll do is have him on the, him or her on the other side accessing the, the, the uh, contralateral femoral vessels. Again, trying to get the artery followed by the vein. Gotcha. And let me just ask, because I'm sure my listeners are curious, are you, are you in a shop without residence? This is a pure attending run shop? Yes, no residence. Gotcha. So these are uh, two or possibly three attendings are starting for stage one, putting just normal cortices in, and now you're ready for stage two. Oh, wait, exactly I should ask right. you, Joe, how are you verifying the, the location of these as being in the correct vessels at this point? 
It's a really good question. Uh, you know, we've messed with a lot of different means of trying to do that, and uh, I've actually had some success using things like the bubble test. Uh, f- but the hard part is, is that when somebody's got CPR ongoing, and as you know, you know, we don't want to stop that CPR. So trying to do a bubble test or trying to do a, uh, you know, uh, another means of actually confirming is quite difficult. What we actually do, since we have ongoing resuscitation, we have an art line and a um, the the transduction system all set up and ready to go when the patient hits the door. So once I get that femoral artery line in place, I then transduce that, and we use that, you know, to measure the end, end diastolic pressures to sort of to to manage the, the resuscitation side of this. So we're using these lines for things other than just ECMO, but that kind of you know leaves a nice way of of at least somewhat confirming that the line's in the correct place. Fantastic. So stage two. Stage two, this is a point where the both physicians that are involved uh, have identified that this patient, we want to go forward and uh, continue with the resuscitation. The patient has not yet responded to the resuscitative efforts that have been done. And at this point, uh, we decide to uh, change the femoral uh, catheters from their nine French positions to the big uh, ECMO catheters. And these are massive catheters. Uh, the ECMO catheters uh, are... Uh, venous catheters that are 17 to 21 French and arterial catheters that are 15 to 19 French. These things are huge. Um, so it really does take the decision that we're really going to do this, you know, on both physicians' minds uh, to go forth with this. So then what we do is um, you put a wire into each uh, of the femoral nine French cortices. And then there are two dilators in a kit. So these uh, ECMO catheters come in a, a preset kit, and the kit we use um, is a kit from uh, Medtronic. And uh, we, uh, it's an all-inclusive kit that includes the wire. So the wire goes in, and then uh, two dilators dilate up uh, whichever vessel you're going into. And then the last thing is the ECMO catheter has a trocar inside of it that you then pass in. You have to make a pretty big incision on the skin to make this whole thing pass in, but uh, uh, the, the whole thing just passes in, just like you're dilating anything else up, but this is, you know, massive catheters. When, when you say a big cut, how, how big are we talking? Oh, you're probably going to have to make a stab of about two, a centimeter and a half, two centimeters Got it. to get enough space. Yeah, you really have to cut. And in heavier set people, they tend to have a bit of fascia down below, and you sometimes have to cut a bit deeper. And in a couple of cases, we've actually had to take like a snaps or a, or a Kelly and go down and kind of do a blunt dilation to get to the vessel. Now, now, just so everyone's on the same page, you're doing all this while chest compressions are going on. Absolutely. How do you do that, Joe? It was, it's not easy. Uh, you know... It's a it's a it's a challenging thing to do. Um, I think that you just get pretty good at doing it when you've done a few of them. I, I've had resonance even with the smaller lines really destroy a vessel trying to get those dilators in. Do you have any tips for that? For actually dilating over a wire without destroying the vessel? Are, are you dilating um, perpendicular to the skin? Or are you trying to actually follow the vessel's path and staying really um, close to the angle of the skin itself? Oh no, I get your point. We are ab- we're absolutely trying to stay as sort of close to the angle uh, or the 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 uh, the horizontal to the skin as much as possible and kind of get a nice angle towards the vessel. Obviously, if you're going to go in a perpendicular fashion, you might re- result in a bit of a problem. These catheters are so big that you could easily tear open the back of the vessel if you're not careful. Perfect. Perfect. All right, so stage 2 is done. You have huge ECMO catheters in the femoral artery and femoral vein. What's next? 
yeah, bear in mind now that these these vessels, especially the femoral arteries, got you know as soon as you get that in, blood's flying across the room. So you're going to get a clamp. You've got we've got these uh, vessel clamps, or I shouldn't say that uh, uh, line clamps that go on each on on each of the of the of the lines, the femoral artery and the femoral vein lines. Each have a clamp on them. At the same time that all this is going on, our ECMO team, which is um, uh, we, we at Sharp, we actually have a, a nurse-run system where the ICU has two nurses who are always available on call who are ECMO-trained. And they bring the mobile cart from the SICU down to the ER. So that's all kind of happening simultaneously. We've called for them as we start dilating up these lines and, and putting – in fact, we call them from the time we start putting in the nine French cortices. So they show up, and they actually prime the system. So that brings up the next question, I think, is what is this sort of system? And we have a uh, – the ECMO mm, machine is a combination of a oxygenator, a pump, a heat exchanger, and then the disposables, which are basically the circuit. The circuit is going to contain patient blood, so it's obviously disposable. And the nurses are priming that with a priming solution, which is basically similar to half-normal saline. And the whole thing gets primed, at which time they top up. So then they're going to hand you two big um, tubes, one of which is going to be the input coming from the uh, femoral vein catheter, and the other is going to be the output going to the femoral arterial catheter. So they have two, these two lines that they're holding up. We're holding up two lines coming from the patient. We top off both with uh, saline so that they're completely topped so we don't have a, you know, a, an air embolus there. And then very quickly, we're using sort of these little Christmas tree adapters. You, you jam them together, release the clamps, at which time they turn on the pump and everybody's, on, everybody's a go. Now, I want the audience to conceptualize this for a second because uh, when you're doing full support ECMO, the aorta is actually being back perfused, and, and people should get their minds around this. It's coming from the leg back up the aortic arch and perfusing everything that way. It's not your normal path of circulation. That's absolutely correct. So we're, the femoral venous line is a very long line that should ideally extend all the way up to, the, uh, to just below, just, just exactly where the right atrium uh, enters. So you're, you're basically you've cantilated the whole IVC. That's pulling blood out of that location, running it through uh, the pump, through an oxygenator. So you've got both the pump and the oxygenation, and CO2 is pulled off at that point. And then it's pumped back through the arterial catheter, which is a shorter catheter that extends up to just below the renal arteries. So you're shooting blood basically backwards or retrograde up the arch into the heart and the, the, uh, the, coronary, the coronary and the cerebral vessels. Are you having to anticoagulate the patient for all this uh, foreign body tubing that the blood's throwing through? Absolutely. So there's, there's two sort of components to that. One is heparinization. We're going to be doing systemic heparinization. Uh, obviously, blood clotting in a number of different locations is a bad thing, so heparinization is um, important. And then secondarily, the, um, the entire circuitry itself, the disposables that are made, in this case by the McKay system, have a uh, component called BioLine, but each of them have their own uh, heparin-bonded uh, uh, circuitry uh, that, that we've used in the past. So at this point, stage three is completed. The patient's on bypass. So now you stop CPR. We stop CPR. Absolutely. And now the patient's being maintained by the pump. But uh, ostensibly, their heart is still beating, right, Joe? It can or it can't be. Ideally, uh, let's just take our case. Uh, our guy had V-fib uh, that was basically refractory to any efforts before we put him on ECMO. Now, the nice thing about ECMO is that you get this nice... Um, 
uh, you know, uh, pressure and oxygenated blood that's getting to the heart. So uh, ideally and often what will happen is the heart will then, you know, recover from its um, from its dysrhythmia. However, if it doesn't, uh, the question came up, you know, comes up as to whether we continue doing uh, shocking these patients to try and get them out. And the answer to that question is absolutely. So ideally, if you don't if you don't have a beating heart that creates a couple of issues. Uh, the main one is that um, a, a non-beating heart is now accepting a huge bolus of uh, blood coming, as we talked earlier, in the retrograde fashion. So you've got blood now coming through the arch at the left ventricle, which will then or can at that point increase le- left heart filling pressures, left uh, atrial filling pressures, and you can end up having a pretty bad hemorrhagic pulmonary edema that will and sometimes can be fatal. So in ideal situations, we'll get the heart back to pumping again. Are you cooling these patients as well, Joe? Absolutely. So we cool just as if we're going to cool anybody else. So if somebody goes down and they, well, there's sort of two components to this, right? It's the patient who has no neurologic function after you put them on ECMO. Uh, We're going to cool those. Those are quite obvious. But the question really is whether or not to start cooling sooner anyway. And we try, We, we, we do it when we can. And the nice thing about the um, the ECMO machine is that it's got a heat exchanger on there, which can both heat and cool. And so we can bring them down to 32 with no problem. That's amazing. Now, what happens now? So the patient's on ECMO, who's running this machine while they're still in the ED? Great question. So in our system, now there's a number of ways that this is managed around the country, but in our system, we have a nurse-based system, which means that a nurse is authorized essentially to run the machine for 45 minutes to 60 minutes. Uh, And they're trained to do so, and they basically run the whole thing. And that's basically waiting until a perfusionist can come in. So we have a perfusionist... I'm sorry, a perfusionist who's on call who is supposed to be there within 45 to 60 minutes, and then they take over. So how much does the ED attendings working in your shop have to know about ECMO aside from placing the catheters in order to get this to function? Do they have to be giving orders to adjust this, or is that entirely nurse-run? It's entirely nurse-run, so that's kind of the beauty of this in some ways. Now, as the sort of the guy who's one of two guys at our shop that's uh, that's setting up the protocols and dealing with ECMO, I have a bit of more knowledge dealing with the machine itself. However, our our ER docs pretty much just need to know how to put in the catheters and how to hook it up to the uh, the big tubes that are coming off the ECMO machine. The rest is managed by the nursing system and as well whoever the uh, admitting doctors are. So this is often going to be a cardiologist or a or a intensivist, both of whom are pretty well you know versed in how to use the machine. Why don't you give a shout out for your partner while we're here? Uh, Dr. Zach Shiner. He's uh, he's my colleague in crime here. Okay, so you mentioned that we don't have to do CPR because the patient's hemodynamics are being supported. Do we need to ventilate this patient anymore? It's not Another great question. The answer is yes, and there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it's just good uh, critical care, I think, to have some PEEP going on, to have some volume, air volume in the lungs uh, to prevent atelectasis and pneumonia and those kinds of things. But secondarily, uh, a problem could, you know, you could have a problem basically if you have deoxygenated blood in or deoxygenated blood in the lungs that are then going into the uh, now left atrium into the left ventricle, then when that blood does, if and when it does get pushed out, if the heart's beating, you're going to have an admixture of blood blood in the arch that could be both venous and arterial, and that could be problematic for a number of obvious reasons. So uh, it's ideal to have these patients ventilated as well, although you do a really nice sort of protective lung um, ventilation strategy. You have an article in press right now, and I, I was lucky enough to read a reviewer copy of that. And one of the things that came out of the conclusion was the idea that in some uh, places, EMS spends a lot of time running the entire code 
uh, while they're there on the scene and basically bring you a patient that's not viable if they do decide to transport. And now your protocol might cause a shift in that as a strategy for EMS. Can you talk a bit about that, Joe? Sure, absolutely. I, I And I don't want to try and... Uh jump the gun too much. Obviously, a, a good randomized control trial and some prospective stuff needs to be done before we can make these decisions. But I think it's uh, just sort of anticipating what may come in the future uh, is exactly that. So in San Diego, uh, the current dogma is, is sort of a stay and play kind of a thing with a thought process that, well, you know, what can we offer a patient in the ER that they can't offer in the field. Uh, and, you know, we all know that CPR goes down and ventilations become crappy when we start transporting patients. So the idea in San Diego anyway is to uh, continue working the patient until they either get, you know, return a spontaneous circulation or they're declared dead. And I think the one of the interesting things about this is this is the one thing that we can add to that resuscitative protocol that is new and different and might actually be life-saving. So, um, you know, the question remains then is, you know, which patients do we transport? Is it a time thing? Is it an age thing? You know, it's a tough question. We're still trying to sort out those details as we speak. Let's do three questions on the administrative aspects of this. The first one that sprung to my mind when I heard about you doing this is how did you sell your administration on this as a concept? Didn't have to. We are in a very lucky situation. So our situation is one where we had a very successful in-house ECMO protocol, and it was as simple as moving that machine downstairs, and it's on wheels, so it was a pretty easy thing to do. So fortunately, I really didn't have to do much in the terms of sales. And what actually sort of happened was that we decided to kind of do this, and we had a couple of success cases before we uh, uh, went ahead and said, okay, we're going to form a formal policy on this in our ER. That's always so, a great way to go. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, exactly. Is there any cost issues that come out of this? Uh, you, you know, you can anticipate some potential problems, I would imagine. As with anything these days, we really need to be uh, cost conscious. Uh, I would say, though, that the cost of putting a patient onto ECMO is about 1600 bucks. Uh, it's cheaper than a Swan-Gans. It's cheaper or as about the same price as an intra-aortic balloon pump. And interestingly, it's cheaper than the intercool catheter, which I, I believe costs in the realm of two, uh, 2000 bucks. So we not only put a patient on cardiopulmonary bypass, but we can cool them and that's cheaper than putting somebody onto a, you know, an intercool catheter. So I think the actual costs of this are rather inexpensive. Gotcha. And has there been any pushback from any of the intensivists at your hospital who would say, I'm getting patients who clearly would have died on their own, and now you're putting them on bypass, and now they're living, and now I have to deal with the consequences? You know, it's a good question. We, we haven't. And I think the reason that we haven't is that when we decided to go forth with this sort of ED ECMO program, we basically got any, everybody on board. We, every, we got everybody into a big room and said, here's what we're planning to do. Here's the patients we're planning to do it on. We're going to keep it to this very select, uh, finite group of patients um, that meet certain and specific criterion. And then, the, you know, the, the other side to that coin is that these patients don't, they don't linger forever because they've got a bunch of medical issues that are going on. They usually, in, at least in our experience thus far, limited as it may be, uh, these patients either two days later are declared brain dead, they've just got nothing going on, or that uh, dramatic insult that caused them to be put on bypass in the first place has been fixed. Maquette has put out a machine that's uh, basically not much bigger than a transport monitor. Have you gotten a chance to play with that yet, Joe? 
I have. Uh, I have not actually used it in a live patient, but uh, they brought it by and they they they're 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 pushing it pretty heavily. But that's great. Uh, it's uh, I think it's called Cardio Help, and uh, it's a neat little machine. It, con- it weighs about ten kilos. You can put it in the back of your car, and you can drive someplace and put somebody on ECMO if you wanted to. The uh, issue with it is that it does not use the same disposables. It does not use the same uh, circuit as its bigger brother that we use now, which is you know, the $1,600 model. Uh, their new uh, cardio help circuitry is very, very expensive. So there's a cost prohibition right now. I gotcha. Do you ever foresee this being easy enough that a perfusionist won't have to be at the bedside 24 hours a day? My understanding is that the new uh, McKay machine, the cardio help is supposed to be sort of easy enough for a nurse to run, but I haven't actually talked to the nursing staff who run it yet. Let's go out uh, just talking about one more case from that article that's under review, because this case was just amazing. Why don't you tell us about that aortic dissection case, Joe? There's a recent article that just came out out of Korea that listed aortic dissection as an absolute contraindication to putting a patient on ECMO. Uh, this was a 77-year-old guy that came in, and he, he's sort of like your um, penetrating trauma kind of guy. He shows up to the ER, he's got a pulse, and then he loses it right in front of you. So this is a guy who theoretically would be savable, but we didn't know what the issue was. He got brought back. We had a couple of doctors working on him. I, uh, was, not, I was sort of the line doc in this case, whereas another one of my colleagues was, uh, was the resuscitation doctor. I did put in a nine, a nine French into his vein and artery, but then the question was, well, what's going on with this guy? So we got out the ultrasound probe, as we always do. You know, you run through your, your A, B, C, D, E algorithms that you do, and uh, you know, in the differential, as we're sort of working this guy up, uh, took a look at his abdomen. There's no blood there. Took a look at his heart, and he's got this huge pericardial effusion. Um, his blood pressure was zero, and his heart rate was in the realm of 150 or so, so uh, ended up uh, doing an ultrasound-guided pericardiosynthesis and then put in the, uh, the uh, percutaneous um, drainage catheter over the wire. Um, and then over the course of the next oh, 15 minutes or so, we pulled off about 700 cc's of blood. In doing so, uh, the patient did not have a return of blood pressure, though. Heart rate still 120, and there was no return of blood pressure at all. So the question then becomes, is this a guy that's a candidate for ECMO? Um, he wasn't going to live by any other means, so we decided to go ahead and put him on pump. So we uh, went to stage two, dilated up, uh, stage three, put him on pump, and at that time, in the course of that amount of time, we were able to have our uh, ultrasound uh, echocardiographer come in and uh, take a look by TEE, and indeed, this guy ended up having a complete uh, um, breakdown of his aortic valve. So he's on pump now. He's stabilized to some degree. Um, he's got good flow through the pump, and we ended up taking him to the OR. I didn't, but uh, the cardiothoracic surgeon, Sam Baradarian, took him to the OR, and Ended up putting a new arch, or you know, putting an arch graft in, and then did a uh, valvuloplasty on the um, on the aortic valve, and and the guy did pretty well. He uh, he had a prolonged course in the hospital because of some lung issues, ex smoker, but uh, ended up uh, being discharged completely neurologically intact. Insane, and there there's basically no way this guy would have survived at any other institution, as far as I could see, looking at the case. Exactly, I don't I don't think so. Wow, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go out? This is a procedure that's performed by ER physicians. It's, it's big central lines, but it's not that tough. And the, your biggest barrier, I think, is going to be to get sort of a program established. But you get a program established, this is life-saving stuff. This is just the most amazing thing. When you get somebody on pump and you see them turn from blue to pink and you see their cardiac dysrhythmia go away and you see them just you know, turn the corner in a matter of a second as soon as you flip that pump on, it's really an amazing, amazing thing. So you know, I encourage you to try and see if you can't 
get some help and uh, and 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 try and put together a program for yourself. I, you know, most of you, if you're if you're working in a big institution, it's quite possible that upstairs you've got a uh, somebody upstairs who's running a uh, an ECMO program, and it's usually going to be on wheels, and it won't be that tough for you to walk that machine downstairs, and you've got one of these patients. Uh, well, I have to say, I'm incredibly jealous. I can't thank you enough. This is really, really amazing. Well, that's great. I uh, I hope it works out well. All right, folks. So that was Joe Belezzo from San Diego, Sharp Hospital. I think he is the first ED physician to start a resuscitative ECMO program in the ED in the United States. I'm impressed. I'm jealous. Maybe MCRIT should move to San Diego. That's all for this week. This is Scott Weingart, the MCRIT podcast, saying bye-bye.